Can you tell me what's your name? You kidding me? <laughs> Is this guy kidding me breaking my balls or what? Seriously? Well, like, just imagine, <laughs> just imagine, no, 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 just imagine we're, I'm like, I'm introducing you to, yeah. Um, so, hi, uh, we know each other, but for people who don't know, what's your name? I'm Private Investigator Manuel Gomez. What do you do? I hunt down bad guys, I prove people innocent, I bring in rapists and murderers and serial killers. So, you've said this before, rapists, murderers, and serial killers, but that's not really what you're known for, right? Oh, mostly now, lately, I've been known for getting innocent people out of jail, proving them innocent. I see myself as a, as a punisher for the wicked. I see myself as a bringer of justice for the good. I protect the weak. Manny Gomez, private eye, lives alone in a small apartment in a quiet part of the Bronx. He's got this watch that's really a camera, and he has a pen that's really a knife. He says his favorite book is the Bible, but the one he talks about most often is The Art of War. I first met Manny more than two years ago. I'm a reporter, and I was covering criminal justice, and he said he had a story for me. A story that would expose just how crooked and broken the justice system is in the Bronx. This story, it was a detective story, with some of the usual trappings of detective stories. A shooting. A suspect. A cop who bends the rules. A mysterious set of circumstances. And in the middle of it all, Manny Gomez. A brash P.I. who turned out to be something of a mystery himself. In his mind, he was the hero of the story. But a lot of people saw him as a villain. And as I followed him on his investigation, through the neighborhoods and the courtrooms of the Bronx, I often wondered which version was true. It took me more than two years, two years of interviews, of tracking down documents, of digging through the pile of lawsuits that people in the story filed against each other. But I think I finally got an answer. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo, and this is Conviction. A lot of detective stories start with the blonde. Manny's happens to be one of them. I'll never forget this. I'm walking out the court building, and this blonde Spanish mother with curly hair, long curly hair, comes over to me and says, I've been looking for you. You're that guy. She goes, my son needs your help. We're being harassed and tormented by the 42nd precinct. And I was told that you're the man to get it done. The blonde was Jessica Perez. She'd come to Manny asking for help with her son, Pedro, who was 16 years old at the time. She said the police were targeting him for crimes he didn't commit. I said, I need you to please gather anything you can so they could stop harassing my son. I don't know what else to do. I need help. When I met Jessica at her apartment, she told me the story. She said Pedro's troubles with the law the troubles that brought her to Manny, started all the way back in 2010. At that time, the South Bronx was one of the most heavily policed communities in the history of the country. New York cops routinely stopped and searched people on the street, 
And the vast majority of these stops took place in low-income Black and Latino neighborhoods, like the one Jessica lived in. A survey taken not far from Jessica's home found that three out of every four people said they'd been stopped by the cops. And those stops could get aggressive. Young men would often get thrown up against walls, forced down to the ground. People who were stopped around this time often described the experience as scary and humiliating. Jessica was worried about her son, Pedro, who was about to become a teenager. He was getting taller. He'd grown his hair out into long braids. And she said she felt like those things made the cops more likely to stop him. She also said he wasn't the kind of kid who just went along with things that seemed unfair. He talked back. Pedro was more of a... I don't know what's the word. In, in, in Spanish, we call him cojonú. I don't know what you call it in English. I think, you know, yes, something like that. Like he got balls. Like the type of kids that I don't care. I'm not scared. I'm not gonna let them search me. Why they gotta be searching me whenever they feel like it? All I'm doing is going to the grocery store. This, that. Jessica says that as Pedro got further into his teens, he got stopped more and more. It seemed like any time something went wrong in the neighborhood, he got picked up. First, first shooting, then another shooting than a robbery. He was arrested six times in just two years. But Pedro says he was innocent, and the prosecutors kept dropping the charges, suggesting that the cops hadn't found enough evidence. Pedro says that only seemed to make the harassment worse. One time, I got stopped five times in a day. This is Pedro. Same offices and same precinct. So one precinct. They just come out, all of a sudden, there's the guns. I tell them it's on your waist. They'd be like, oh, nah, you got guns. I said, I don't got no guns. So they'd search me, find nothing, be mad, flip the car. And like embarrassing, I'll find. Everywhere I go, I'd be searched. They won't find nothing, so they'll be mad. So I'll go to my friend's house, I'll go to my house, and I'll come right back outside. They'll think I went upstairs to get something, and they'll search me again. It's like if I had a checkpoint every time I was leaving my house. It's like a checkpoint right. with the cops. Then, in July 2016, Pedro was arrested for yet another crime, a shooting. The authorities said he shot a 15-year-old boy in the foot during a fight in his neighborhood. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Again, Pedro said he didn't do it. Nevertheless, he was thrown in jail on Rikers Island. The next month, at Pedro's bail hearing, a prosecutor stood before a judge in the Bronx courthouse and asked the judge to set a very high bail. He noted that Pedro had been arrested many times before. He claimed that Pedro was a gang member, that he was, quote, out on the streets and had no fear. Pedro's court-appointed lawyer tried to push back on those claims. He pointed out that the cops had a history of arresting Pedro for charges that ended up getting dropped. And he asked the judge to at least consider giving Pedro a bail that his family could afford so that Pedro wouldn't be stuck in jail while waiting for the trial, a wait that could last months or even years. Instead, the judge went with the prosecutor and set the bail at a quarter million dollars, an enormous sum, even for someone accused of a violent crime, a sum that Jessica could never hope to pay. On her next visit to Pedro, Jessica drove across the long, narrow bridge that stretches to Rikers Island, a bridge some inmates call the Bridge of Pain. 
She says she had to steady herself for the task ahead of her. She didn't look forward to telling her son that she had no hope of bringing him home. A person in, in the state of mind of Rikers Island is already devastated, is already bad. They know they locked up. They know they can't come out. That's a normal man in Rikers Island. A child in the hands of Rikers Island makes it even worse. So when I told you I had to become cold-hearted, that first visit, it wasn't being a bad mother, but I had to leave my feelings in my car right before crossing that bridge. Cry, 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 cry. Because I knew if I crossed the bridge and I went to that visit to tell him he had to stay there because his bill was too high and we couldn't get him out, it would make him worse. Either him react bad and maybe hurt somebody else or him hurt himself. That was the day that he first told me this is making me feel like I want to die. And that was the day that I came home and I had two options. Have the same feelings with him. He wants to die, I want to die too. Or get mad about it and do something about it. She decided to do something about it. And what that meant for Jessica, what that meant for a growing number of families in similar situations throughout the Bronx, was summoning a certain private detective. I didn't believe this at first, because it was, it, was, it was too freaking outrageous. It was too out there. But the one thing you have to do as an investigator is eliminate all the variables. And whatever's left, no matter how outrageous, no matter how crazy, no matter how ludicrous it might seem, that's the truth. In the South Bronx, where Jessica lived, Manny was becoming something of a folk hero, complete with nicknames. The Spanish Shaft, El Sombra Blanco. He'd taken on a bunch of cases similar to Pedro's, cases where people had been accused of crimes they said they didn't commit. And it helped them get out of jail, get their charges dropped. For a lot of people, Manny seemed to be a solution to a big problem, a problem that's especially big in New York. The state is one of four in the country with something called a blindfold law, which means defense attorneys have very limited access to the prosecution's evidence. In Pedro's case, the paperwork that the prosecutors turned over contained only the most basic information. It said that there was a shooting in which a 15-year-old got hit in the ankle, and it said that, quote, one or more witness or witnesses had picked Pedro out of a photo array as the shooter, but didn't reveal who those witnesses were or what they claimed to have seen, or how many of them there were. Was it one person? Two? Dozens? It didn't say. Prosecutors argue there's a good reason why they keep a lot of information from the defense. They say they have to do that to protect witnesses from retaliation. But a lot of defense attorneys say that makes it almost impossible for them to defend their clients. The stuff that you do get is heavily redacted to the point that many times it's unintelligible. This is Marty Goldberg, a lawyer with 30 years' experience as both a defense attorney and a prosecutor in the Bronx. He didn't represent Pedro, but he's represented a lot of kids in Pedro's situation. Kids who've been arrested and thrown in jail with very little information about their alleged crimes. 
Now you get discovery that's so heavily redacted that, okay, it's missing the name, right? So you don't know who said it. I mean, just to give you an example, it'll say, you know, I interviewed blank on such and such a day at blank address. Blank told me that blank said to him that blank, blank, and blank were together when blank said to, that's, that's what you get. How the fuck do you make any sense out of that? This is where Manny comes in. Manny prides himself on getting information that lawyers can't get. And that's what Pedro needed, information. The prosecutors weren't going to give it to him. The law wouldn't help him get it from them. And his attorney couldn't seem to get it either. But Manny, maybe he could. Can you describe where we are? Right now, we're on Boston Road in the heart of the South Bronx on East 169th Street. And as One of the first things Manny did when he took the case was go to the crime scene. He later showed me and my producer, Meg, where it all went down. Actually, matter of fact, you are at the actual spot where the shooting happened, which was 169th Street between Clinton and Boston Road. And this is the shooting that Pedro's actually in jail for? the shooting that Pedro's in jail for, and you're in the exact location, you know? The shooting, the one that got Pedro thrown into Rikers, took place on the evening of September 1st, 2015. According to the official account, two rival crews of kids were fighting outside a supermarket when one of the kids began firing a gun into the crowd. As the crowd scattered, a bullet hit a kid in the back of the ankle. For months, the case remained unsolved. But then, nearly a year after the shooting, Pedro was arrested and charged as the shooter. Manny wanted to find out more about the shooting, and he knew he wasn't going to learn anything else about it from the prosecutors. So we started walking the streets near the crime scene, talking to people, joking around with them. We wanted to get them to open up so that he could find out what they knew about the crime. I went to the playgrounds. I went to the libraries. I went to the schools. I went to the, the, the social corners where people would gather near Bodega where the music was. I would always go around those spots. I would drive around and listen. Just cruise around with the top down and look what spots were people hanging out. After months of looking, Manny got a break. Today is September 17, 2016. In front of me is a direct eyewitness that saw the shooter and shooting of September 1st, 2015. Senor, This is a video that Manny recorded from his cell phone. He's taking a statement from one of Pedro's neighbors, Odales Hermosin. Okay. You know, he's just an old man in the building, doesn't bother him, he retired. You know what I mean? He was coming out, buying a pack of cigarettes. He had his little groceries, and he described everything to the T. To be a Enes que se llame Pedro Hernandez. Hermosin is saying that Pedro wasn't there when the shooting happened. Okay. He's saying the shooter didn't even look like Pedro. He says the shooter was black, Pedro's Latino, with a light brown complexion. As Manny continued to canvass the neighborhood, he spoke with other people who were claiming the same thing. 
What is your name? Jermaine Tonkara. Okay. Can you please tell me what happened on September 1st, 2015? While I was walking to my friend's house, I had seen a group of kids all going to scream in. I seen a black kid shoot at the crowd. I ducked for safety. And then I, I walked through like I walked off. Now, when you saw the shooting, was Hernandez involved in that shooting? No. So he wasn't, you didn't see him shoot or do anything in that shooting? No. Eventually, he found a third person who said they witnessed the shooting, and a fourth. In front of me is Miss... Nildesaile Beltran. All right, could you say that a little slower? What is it? Nildesaile Beltran. Beltran. This woman tells Manny that on the night of the shooting, she was crossing the street with her baby, headed to a bodega, when she heard a commotion. I seen, um, like, a group fighting. How many? More than five? Yeah, ten? more than five, and they was black guys. They were black guys. Okay, so then what happened during the fight? So they was fighting, and from out of nowhere, I just seen this guy shot at the group. And then what, what happened after that? I left. Everybody left. It's a shooting. Everybody's running. Right. And I have my baby, so I just, you know... She, too, said the shooter didn't look like Pedro. Manny now had four different people who told him that they'd witnessed the shooting and that Pedro didn't do it. But Manny still needed to talk to one more key person. The person who Pedro had been accused of shooting. That's coming up after the break. The person Manny was looking for, the kid that Pedro allegedly shot, was named Sean Nardoni. Manny said a witness told him that on the night of the shooting, he'd seen Sean Nardoni limping down the street, headed south. So Manny started canvassing the blocks in that area, asking if anyone knew where the kid could be found. One night... I got a tip on the street that Sean Nardoni was on a skateboard in the park, in the projects... With a group of kids. He sped to the park in his silver Corvette convertible, wearing one of his signature double-breasted suits. So I went out there about 10 o'clock at night. It was like a hot night. It's like 80 degrees that night. I show up. I'm listening to Phil Collins. Got the music pumping. You always listen to Phil Collins when you're going to go try to speak to a witness or a victim? Uh, it's nothing like listening to In the Air tonight at night with the top down and the wind in your hair. You want to come in, like, with your music blaring. You want to make a presence. You don't want to come in like, you know, like some kind of detective. If I come in there, listen to Journey or some music, and they see a vet all shiny and crisp and a convertible top down, the kids are like, wow, hot car. They're not going to think detective. Phil Collins popular in the Bronx? No, it's not, but I got to make a statement. (laughs) But you know what? It turns heads, especially with that drum sequence. So I come in, the kids turn their heads, I get out the car, I leave the top open, I walk up, and I says, uh, little Sean? Manny says that as soon as he called out Sean's name, Sean took off on his skateboard. Now Manny, he's got sort of um, the opposite of a runner's body. He's built like a safe, very strong, but square. But he sets off on foot after the kid. 
Now I gotta run after him on his freaking skateboard. Like three bucks. And I'm saying, Sean, I'm not a cop. I'm a detective, I'm here to help. And it's a poorly lit, dark park where the visibility is not that good. And I'm not in a blue pinstripe suit with a freaking pink shirt on, all right? Standing out like a sore thumb. He finally stops. And I told him, I said, listen, I know you're a victim. I know you were shot. I might get to hurt you. No, the last time somebody came over and talked to me, they arrested me and they beat me up and put me in a precinct. This is what he shouts to me. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Am I going to mess up my suit to beat you up right now? What are you out of your freaking mind? That's what I told him, you know? By the time Manny drove away in his vet, he'd added another video to his collection. In front of me is Mr. Who? Sean Aldoni. Okay, in September 1st, 2015, where were you? Were you in the Bronx? Yeah. All right, what happened to you? I was shot. You were shot? Yeah. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit how it happened? I was coming from seeing some girl, 169. Okay, and then what? Uh, apparently to see some crowd of people. Okay. And I walked the opposite way. Uh-huh. And a few seconds later, I heard shots. You heard shots. Okay. And then what? Then uh, I apparently fell on the call. I can't hear you. You got to speak I, up. I apparently fell on the call. Why? You were shot? Because I was shot. Where were you shot? In my leg. Okay. In the video, Sean tells Manny he didn't see who shot him. He says he was taken to the hospital came back home, and eventually he was picked up by the cops and brought into the precinct to answer questions about the shooting. Where were you taken? 42nd Precinct. 42nd Precinct? Yeah. Okay. Sean says that when he got to the 42nd Precinct, a detective tried to get him to identify the shooter. Started to ask me questions for like three, four hours. Three hours. Okay. Then... About what? Trying to make me tell him some... Some light-skinned kid. They try to make you tell on some light-skinned kid? Is that what you just told me? Yeah. All right. What do they try to make you tell? They try to make, they try to, like, make me testify to tell him that he shot me or some shit. All right. So did you tell him that you shot him? No, nah, I did not recognize the kid from nowhere. To Manny, this was big. He already had statements from four eyewitnesses saying that Pedro wasn't the shooter. And now, he had the victim himself, Sean Nardoni, saying that a cop relentlessly pressured him to pin the crime on someone, even though Sean insisted he didn't see who shot him. Manny thought all this new evidence made the case against Pedro seem thin and suspect at best, and he was sure it would be enough to get the charges dropped. But that's not what happened. The prosecutor didn't drop the charges. Instead, he all of a sudden changes his story. The prosecutor put forward a different theory of the case. At Pedro's next court date, the prosecutor said that Pedro wasn't actually the shooter, as the indictment originally claimed. Instead, he said, Pedro handed the gun to the shooter. It was still a serious crime. Pedro would have to stay in jail. At that hearing, the prosecutor also suggested that he had questions about Manny's evidence that Manny's witnesses might not have been totally forthright. But he didn't say much beyond that, and a spokesperson at the DA's office declined to comment on the case. Manny's attempt to get Pedro out of jail had failed, but he wasn't done trying. 
If anything, he was more convinced than ever that the authorities had it out for Pedro. And there was one cop in particular who Manny believed was responsible, Detective David Terrell. Detective Terrell was the cop who questioned the shooting victim, Sean Nardoni. Officer Terrell brought me in his room for questioning. Officer Terrell? Yeah. Okay, so he brought you in the room, and then what? Sean Nardoni claimed that when he refused to identify the shooter, Detective Terrell threatened him. He's trying to, like, he's trying to, he, he said, what's it called? Stop playing around him before you punch my head into the wall. So let me see if I heard you correctly. Detective Terrell told you stop playing around before well, he punched punch my head to the wall, yeah. Before he punched your head in the wall? And he, why? Because I was, because I was not trying to tell him, tell him what he wanted to hear. Terrell would later file a lawsuit claiming he had no, quote, personal involvement with Sean Nardoni. I eventually sat down with Terrell, and I'll get into all that in future episodes. For now, what I can tell you is this. Sean Nardoni wasn't the only person who told Manny that he'd had problems with Detective Terrell. Jessica, Pedro's mom, said she'd had problems too. According to Jessica, those problems started a few years earlier, when one of her sons, Pedro's older brother, started having run-ins with the cops. She said one day she got a strange phone call. I receive a call. Hi, this is um, Officer Terrell from 42nd. I'm like, yes, how can I help you? Oh, I'm calling you. I was wondering if you could bring me lunch. I would love some Spanish food. <laughs> I said, I'm not the cooker and I'm not your wife, so you got the wrong girl. Good afternoon, officer. I hanged up the phone. Jessica says she didn't even know how he had her number. Maybe he'd found it on some paperwork at the station. According to her, this wasn't the last time she had to hang up on him. He would call me randomly from a private number, 7 a.m. in the morning. Hey, good morning, Miss Perez. And my husband would be next to me, and I'd be like, who's this? Oh, this is Officer Terrell. How are you doing? Everything's okay? She says she got so fed up with this that she had to change her number. And the next time she saw Terrell, she says she confronted him about it. So I told them, I would appreciate if you don't call my phone, you're not my son's arresting officer, you have no business calling my phone, and stop thinking that you're going to be dating me or you're going to have anything with me. I don't care why you think. No, you're not my type. You're never going to be my type. And no, you understand? Like I put him on zero and it was in front of another officer. It was a white, chubby Young officer, little officer, I forgot his name. And the officer laughed at his face and said, ah, she put you in your place. According to Jessica, this only seemed to make things worse. One time, she said, she was sitting in her car with her mom when a police car pulled up alongside them and she turned and saw a familiar face. He looks at me, hey, Jess, this time it's not Miss Perez, now it's Jess. I looked at him. I'm thinking he's going to come harass because I'm double park or something. He tells my mother, you mommy? And she's like, yeah, I'm her mother. He tells my mother, oh, she a rough one. She she a strong one. My mother said, yeah, I know. He said, yeah, but don't worry. I'm going to make sure I break into her. My mother looked at him and my mother told him, I don't know what you mean, but you're not breaking into her. He just laughed and kept it going. After that, 
I started seeing visits of Tarot in my building more often, more often. The super, the neighbors would tell me he was often in the building, looking into cameras, trying to get my son into something. So I'll probably have to go into his mercy, you know, or... Explain that. Jessica says she eventually began to wonder if this was part of some strategy. If he was trying to use his power as a cop to get women in the neighborhood to date him. If if my son got in trouble and I date you, my son will get a free pass and walk out the precinct. If my son got in trouble, you will make sure the case got dropped because I exchange favors with you. In his lawsuit, Terrell denies involvement in any wrongdoing related to Jessica. And his lawyer would later characterize these allegations as false and laughable. But I spoke with two different people close to Jessica, and they confirm her account. And a background check confirmed that she did change her phone number around this time. To Manny, it was all very suspicious. Terrell had been hanging around Pedro's building. He allegedly harassed Pedro's mother. And the kid who Pedro had been accused of shooting... Terrell had allegedly threatened to punch his head into a wall. Everything seemed to point to Terrell. So Manny says he set off to find out more. He went back to the streets, to the schoolyards and playgrounds, wherever young people were hanging out. They all started to talk to me and tell me about Terrell, and how all of them were victimized, and how all of them knew other kids. And then I had a realization that this is huge. This is way bigger than what I thought it was. I knew it was big when I got involved, but I didn't realize it was going to be a a, a nightmare, a gargantuan nightmare of corruption on this level that is affecting an entire community, an entire police precinct. That's coming up on the next episode of Conviction. Conviction is a production of Gimlet Media. It's hosted by me, Saki Kanafo, and produced by Meg Driscoll, Chris Neary, and Saeed Tijin Thomas. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Lynn Levy, and Jessica Weisberg. Mixing by Sam Baer and Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw. The credits music is Hard Times by Curtis Mayfield, performed by Baby Huey. This series was developed with help from producer Kate Osborne, and it grew out of a collaboration with the New York Times Magazine. Special thanks to my editor there, Mike Benoit. The series was also made in partnership with Type Investigations. Special thanks to Esther Kaplan and fact-checker Evan Malmgren. Special thanks also to Jim St. Germain, Peter Bresnan, Jasmine Romero, and Verilyn Williams. I'm sick and tired of paying you. I'm sick and tired of having so many hearts